Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our sixth episode, Associate Editor A.B. Stoddard has an exclusive interview with Democratic Whip Steny Hoyer. Then, Real Clear World Editor Kevin Sullivan talks with Al Monitor Washington correspondent Laura Rosen about Trump's Mideast policy. First up, A.B. talks with Representative Hoyer about his reaction to President Trump's speech and the future of the Democratic Party. Be sure to stay tuned until the end of her interview when the Maryland Democrat predicts how many House seats his party could pick up in the 2018 election. This is A.B. Stoddard with Real Clear Politics. Welcome, Congressman Hoyer. Thanks for joining us. President Trump last night gave an optimistic and uplifting, we all agree, presidential speech. And the snap poll showed that uh, those respondents who watched it uh, thought that um, it was terrific and that his policies made them more hopeful about uh, the direction of the country. What's your reaction? Well, I think his rhetoric was good, uh, but uh, and I think, therefore, the response was uh, hopeful, and uh, uh, you know everybody wants to create more jobs. Everybody wants to uh, reduce crime. Everybody wants to make sure that uh, our kids have the best education they can get. Uh, and so he was long on hope and very small on policy. Uh, and in some ways, he reiterated what, uh, in, in a softer, uh, softer rhetoric, but nevertheless the bleak view of America today, uh, which I think is inaccurate, but which he used during the course of his campaign to appeal both to the fears and the anger uh, of uh, uh, some Americans. And uh, so I think that was unfortunate. There were parts of his speech that were very dark and I think appealed uh, to prejudice and and fear, as his campaign did. And I refer to the uh, introduction of guests whose, whose, whose family members had been the victims of uh, crimes by uh, immigrants, uh, presumably illegal immigrants, according to uh, Obama. Excuse me, according to uh, Trump. But the fact is that uh, uh, when he got to saying how he was going to do the things that he talked about, whether it was increasing substantially military spending, uh, whether it was uh, making sure that our streets are safe or that our education uh, of our children, uh, all of our children, is uh, a top quality, which we want. But he was very, very light on, okay, how are you going to do that, Mr. President? Uh, uh, to some degree, he continued his fact-free uh, discussion of objectives uh, so that I think the, the initial reaction, yes, I'm, as I listened to it, I said, you know, people are going to think, yes, that's a good objective, and yes, that's a good objective, uh, but uh, then he's going to be put to the uh, test of showing how are you going to do that. Uh, it was interesting that uh, he talked about the Affordable Care Act and repealing that, but then uh, took many of the uh, provisions of the Affordable Care Act, which Republicans have over the last six years tried to repeal, and said, but we're going to keep those. We're going to keep uh, uh, insurance companies from prohibiting uh, people from getting insurance because of pre-existing conditions, uh, allow uh, young people to, uh, to age 26 to stay on their families' policies, but, but eliminate uh, the requirement to have insurance. 
Um, well, uh, I don't think those programs are going to work, which is why uh, 40 days into his presidency, notwithstanding his promise, he put no uh, health replacement or reform bill on the floor. He's put no uh, jobs bill uh, before the people uh, and uh, before the Congress and frankly didn't really discuss it other than they said he was going to create jobs. But he said that during the campaign. But saying they're going to create jobs and doing so are not the same. And of course he uh, indicated a lot of corporations that have said that they're going to invest and create jobs here. Many of them when asked said, well those those plans were made far before uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. So I agree with you, A.B., that the, and, and the polls, that what he said sounded good uh, in many respects, uh, but he didn't tell us how he was going to get from where we are, which, by the way, is substantially improved from where we were when Obama took the presidency of the United States. 15 million new jobs, 20 million people having health insurance, unemployment down at 4.9%. Uh, and yes, uh, as a percentage of GDP, our debt uh, and deficit down. So uh, we will see what his performance is. His rhetoric last night was better than it usually is and delivered in a softer tone. Uh, but it was uh, uh, more of the same uh, hope and Congressman, as you know, Republicans are struggling um, to overhaul the Affordable Care Act. They, I guess they want to knock it down, build it back up, um, and it's quite the task, um, as it was for Democrats. And after six years, they're struggling with how to pay for um, the changes that they want to make that they say would not leave anybody hanging. But we all know from the estimates and the projections that the coverage would actually be net less coverage, um, at least for some people. Uh, what role do Democrats have here? Where do you see this going? Has the president reached out uh, to you or the Republican leadership, uh, to your members? Where is Where are the two parties going to work together on this issue? It's what they have said they have to do first. Well, I think uh, we don't know the answer to that question, A.B. First of all, what we do know, uh, the president has uh, essentially not reached out to anybody. Now, he may have reached out to some Republican leaders. He's not reached out to anybody in the Democratic Party, as far as I know, with respect to policy formulations and the working together that he talked about in his speech, but has shown little inclination of, uh, of pursuing. I think the most dramatic instance of that was uh, when he uh, put forward a uh, poorly thought out uh, program to preclude uh, uh, immigrants, uh, refugees, uh, from seven countries, the Muslim ban, so to speak, which, which he referred to as a Muslim ban. Uh, he didn't talk to uh, the Republican leadership. He didn't talk to his own cabinet members on that. It was simply an edict that came out of the White House, poorly drafted, poorly thought out, uh, with consequences that were neither, uh, which could have been anticipated. Um, so that I have not seen any willingness uh, at this point in time, uh, other than the rhetoric that we hear of actually uh, sitting down and saying, okay, how can we come to an agreement, a consensus, uh, a working together uh, mode. Now, the problem the president has, and frankly the country has, is that the Republican Party is now and has been for a long period of time a deeply divided party. That's why John Boehner is no longer Speaker of the House. Uh, that's
that's why they've been unable to come up with, uh, after six years of criticizing the Affordable Care Act, with an alternative plan. And, and, and we see now that the alternative that was put on the table uh, in, in, in sort of very Reader's Digest form, not, not specifics, but that was put on the table, uh, large numbers of Republicans have said uh, already, we can't back that. That's not the kind of reform we want to see. What they really want to see is repeal. Uh, but uh, uh, we know that if uh, repeal occurs, uh, not only are 20-plus million, some 30 million people going to be very badly hurt immediately, but jobs are going to be affected, states are going to be adversely affected, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's uh, easy to criticize, as the uh, Republicans have been doing for six years, but it is very difficult to make sure that Americans have what we all know is an absolute necessity, and that is access to affordable, quality health care. We believe the Affordable Care Act has done that. Is it perfect? It is not. And what we should have been doing over the last six years is working together to try to make it better. Uh, and the Republicans uh, have had the luxury of rhetorically uh, criticizing it, uh, but because uh, President Obama was president, they could simply say, well, we can't do it. But the reality is now that they control all the levers of government, they can't do it now. And Congressman... They have an ambitious agenda if they get through reforming uh, the Affordable Care Act or repairing it or whatever they're going to rebrand it as. Um, looking forward, obviously, you know, both parties are desperate for infrastructure um, repairs to this country, very, very popular, um, really paramount to voters. And you've also, um, I know that you would like tax reform. Is there common ground for the parties on those two issues going well, forward? There's certainly common ground on the fact that we need infrastructure uh, investment. Uh, we agree with the president on that. Uh, we have been pressing that for some period of time uh, without uh, much Republican help. And of course, again, the president talked about infrastructure, but at the same time, he talked about cutting taxes uh, very deeply. Uh, and increasing uh, the cost of the military very substantially. At some point in time, you come to the reality is, okay, how do you pay for that? Uh, he also talked about, uh, uh, during the course of his campaign, balancing the budget within nine years. Uh, well, it, and it took him about uh, four or five weeks to abandon that promise. And he now says, well, we can't balance the budget, uh, as I thought we could, and I don't have to wait for another day. Well, it, it always waits for another day, frankly, uh, and I'm not surprised that he, he went in that direction. But having said that, yes, we believe that infrastructure is critically important. If we're going to remain competitive in the world and we're going to continue to have a infrastructure which supports the growth and expansion of our economy and the creation of jobs, we need to invest in it. But the, uh, but the issue will then come, okay, how do you pay for it? And Republicans have been uh, in a mode of refusing uh, to uh, have a construct in which you can pay for infrastructure investment. So we'll see uh, where we go from there. But uh, there, there should be areas in which we can make agreement. One of the positive things that happened yesterday was not so much, uh, well, was in the speech, but also before the speech, uh, where we all know that the immigration system that we currently have is broken. Uh, it ought to be fixed. Uh, we've been urging uh, our Republican colleagues in the House to move forward. As their Republican colleagues in the Senate moved forward some years ago, and on a 62 to 38 vote, uh, 
between its more, uh, 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 what should I say, common sense and faction, and the faction in between that's uh, sort of pulled between the two, uh, worried about the Tea Party faction of their party and also the Trump uh, faction of their party and what they uh, believe to be rational policy, but may not be politically viable policy with their uh, base. Yeah, it's obvious that that immigration has divided their party for a long time, and now these balanced budget spending questions are are, are very tough for the party. The Democratic Party is is divided right now, as well. We are hearing that Democrats um, who who work with Trump at all are afraid they might get primary challenges. What do you think about this moment? You have a leaderless party. This has happened to the Republicans recently, and it's 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 a tough time in the wilderness. But um, what is your view about how how you can reach common ground without being more divided as a Democratic Party? Well, Abe, first of all, I'm not sure I accept the premise, and I know it's 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 you're not alone in expressing it that the Democratic Party is a is a divided party, uh, or that, frankly, we're leaderless. We have leaders. Uh, 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 Ms. Pelosi and I are leaders uh, in the House, uh, along with other leaders, and uh, Chuck Schumer, leader in the Senate, and uh, obviously was elected unanimously in the Senate. There was no uh, uh, contest, really. Uh, so it's not as if we're uh, divided, and when you look at the votes on the floor of the House on an almost daily basis, with respect to opposition to the Republicans trying to undermine uh, regulations which protect our people in terms of health care, protect our consumers, protect our environment, uh, you don't see any division in the, in the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think uh, we're united in our support of the Affordable Care Act uh, and uh, improving it, uh, and making it more affordable for small businesses and, and taking some steps which will uh, make it work better. Uh, but I, I, I reject the, the thought that the Democratic Party is divided. Uh, I don't think that's, uh, that's accurate now. In terms of uh, working together uh, with the Republicans on uh, areas where we can find agreement, uh, I think both Nancy and I have said that they, uh, we, we ought to be able to do that, and we, we, we're prepared to do it. But again, Nobody's reached out to us from the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, I don't think the Trump administration, as far as I know, has reached out certainly to me uh, or to Leader Pelosi. Or and I haven't talked to Chuck Schumer, but I don't think they've reached out to him either on policy. So uh, I don't think we're divided. I think the other side has been demonstrably uh, divided, which, again, and the most the starkest uh, uh, demonstration of that uh, was both John Boehner's uh, leaving as Speaker and then the extraordinarily divisive primary that they had uh, and calling one another names and uh, questioning the character and uh, ability and, and, and veracity uh, of one another. Uh, that did not happen. We had a, we'd had a vigorous primary between Mr. Sanders and uh, Mrs. Flynn, but there wasn't that name-calling, and, and there wasn't the... Uh, the, 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 the discussed policy, and now we've come together as a party. Um, in fact, we got more votes than, uh, than the Republican parties did in the presidential election, as you well know. Now the Electoral College uh, uh, provided that uh, Mr. Trump became president. He's a legitimate president. That's our system. Uh, but uh, we're, we're not a party in the wilderness. We're a party that is uh, proud of our accomplishments, 
Congressman, I do see a lot of energy, obviously, on the Democratic side. We've seen a lot of protest um, against uh, President Trump. He did win a minority uh, percentage uh, in his victory. There's uh, polling showing, obviously, that there's a lot of uh, Americans concerned about his presidency. Um, the energy that we've seen so far, what do you see going forward in terms of it being sustained, I mentioned primary challenges, but looking ahead to 2018, uh, before I, I conclude with you, what do you see in terms of the Democrats um, staying together, uh, the energy being sustained? Do they turn out in midterms for the first time in a long time? They certainly didn't in 2010 and 2014. Well, I, I think, first of all, we're optimistic uh, moving forward on 2018. Uh, secondly, historically, as you know, A.B., uh, a president of one party uh, uh, facing a minority uh, after the two year, first two years of his term uh, almost invariably loses uh, uh, his own members and sees the minority party grow. And in fact, that average is somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 35. So we need 24 uh, to get into the majority of the House of Representatives. We do not see that as uh, impossible. As a matter of fact, we see it as a, a very possible result of a public that is going to is is now got Donald Trump at the lowest number of any recent president this far into his term, and far behind uh, Obama, and far behind Clinton, and and, and behind uh, George Bush. Uh, I think Americans are very concerned about the chaos that they see in Washington and the uh, lack of a jobs bill, the lack of a national security uh, effort. Um, and I think they, they, they're watching pretty closely. And the reason you see the energy around the country on the Affordable Care Act is because it was one thing uh, for Republicans to say, we're going to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and the public have a sense that, well, they can't do that. And another thing for them to think, well, maybe this is going to occur, and what they have looked at, very frankly, is what they will lose, what they will not have, and the risk that they will be taking. And they, that's why you see thousands and thousands of people turning out uh, around the country. Uh, and the, this baloney that they're paid uh, people, let me tell you, I've seen in my district, people are energized. Uh, people are engaged, They and they want to get more active, and they want to uh, make a difference because they think their country is at risk. Uh, given the policies that Trump has proposed and the, and the rhetoric that he's used and the division that he has created. So I think there's a lot of energy around the country. As you said, there was a lot of energy in 2010, negative energy. We were the, uh, the, the objects of that, uh, and uh, today the Republicans are the object of that. And I think that uh, uh, in 2010 uh, we, we saw uh, a big loss uh, for, for us. And I think in 2018, the Republicans may see exactly the same thing because their rhetoric of the last eight years, uh, now that they're in charge, has been shown to be pretty empty. Congressman Hoyer, thank you so much for joining us today. Good day. Thanks a lot. Finally, Real Clear World editor Kevin Sullivan talks with Al Monitor Washington correspondent Laura Rosen about the new administration's policies in the Middle East. Uh, thank you for tuning into RCP's. First 100 Days podcast. My name is Kevin Sullivan. I am an editor at Real Clear World. I'm joined today 
by Laura Rosen. Laura is diplomatic correspondent at the Mideast News website, Al Monitor. Laura, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's been a busy week, Laura, uh, for for President Trump. Uh, aside from his uh, address before a joint session of Congress, the president had a comment. Uh, he's he's been going to a, a figure that he likes to often repeat in during speeches. He said that the United States has spent around six trillion dollars in the region over the last fifteen years or so, and uh, sort of lamented the, uh, the situation that he's inherited in the Middle East. He repeated that line. In, uh, in his address before Congress Tuesday evening. I'm wondering, uh, we've heard a lot from the president about what he doesn't like about U.S. policy in the Mideast and the, the legacy of, uh, that he has, in, he has inherited. Uh, do we know m much more now about what U.S. policy is going to look like in the Middle East under the Trump administration, or are we still kind of in the dark? I think we're getting more signals. Um, as you mentioned, you know, uh, Trump's been pretty consistent um, that he regrets that the U.S. invaded Iraq and is um, still over there spending so much money and, and having to use so much force um, to fight the terrorism problem. And so uh, we saw his uh, budget chief on Monday um, say that Trump wants to build up the Defense Department with an extra $54 billion and take that um, money uh, from the non-defense budget, which is, you know, that $54 billion is more than, I think, the State Department budget entirely. Um, so he wants to build up the defense. He says sometimes, you know, maybe we won't have to use it. He leaves open whether we're going to have to use it. I think he's signaling that he's not looking for um, you know, invading another country, but he definitely wants to look tougher. As you've seen, a lot of the, uh, you know, cabinet people he's appointed are, of course, generals and retired generals. Um, and you've also seen at the same time that um, Trump may not fully appreciate yet the skill set that the State Department and the diplomats bring, which is reflected in uh, probably, you know, talking about cutting their budget. Well, let's, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. You know, the, much of what the president, when he does, to, when he has discussed the Middle East, either on the campaign trail or even now as president, a, a pillar of his, his message was about the fight that he intended to bring to the, um, the so-called Islamic State group. We know that Secretary Mattis presented a plan for, for confront, confronting ISIS earlier this week. We, we don't know a whole lot about that plan other than what has been leaked out uh, to, to the press. Where does the president stand in his pledge to destroy the Islamic State? So it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, um, he did get the plan from, from Mattis. It sounds like it's a somewhat iterative process still um, after Mattis delivered it to the White House on Monday. Um, he then met with uh, the principals, Tillerson and others, um, to discuss it. And, and I think the uh, White House press secretary mentioned that, you know, he was getting feedback from the other secretaries, some of whom have just been confirmed and some still yet to be confirmed. So I think it is an iterative process. The um, commander for the fight against ISIS um, in Iraq and Syria today, Stephen Townsend um, on Wednesday, um, was talking a little bit about the recommendations he has passed out to the White House through the chain of command. And that sounded like more continuity with Obama maybe than um, Trump might advertise in terms of the fight against ISIS. In other words, they're still talking about working by, with, and through 
primarily local partners versus a large U.S. you know or coalition ground presence to be doing the fighting. Um, and so they they want you know these are people who've been in and out of Iraq and uh, for 15 years now. And someone, after you clear ISIS out of these areas, Mosul and Raqqa, um, and hold it, someone wants to hold it, needs to hold it, and, and U.S. troops, you know, the U.S. doesn't want to be the one to have to do that. So that's why I think there's more focus on uh, working through local partners, even if you provide more U.S. special forces um, to train and, and equip them and give them advice and, and some firepower. Um, so I, I do think there might be more, um, uh, you know, Trump has shown that he's uh, wants to show that he's tougher than Obama or thinks that he's tougher than Obama. So maybe they'll loosen the rules of engagement a little bit, or um, it seems like there are ways that maybe you could cosmetically show or in reality show um, that you're willing to take the fight a little bit more, that he wants to show that he's tougher, but that the, the dilemmas and choices are all very similar to the ones that Obama faced um, and may and may inhibit um, a much different fight against ISIS um, than Obama was waging the past couple of years. I think that, and, and it seems though you've seen a lot of that in the in in the commentary and news this this week. Also, when when you take into account the the um, the raid in Yemen that that the Trump administration has taken a lot of a lot of heat for, that uh, there does seem to be a certain degree of continuity with with Obama administration policies. One area where he, he does seem to be uh, departing from his predecessor, at least he, he did so on the campaign trail, w was in his approach to the civil war in Syria. And now in Syria, the, the war is dragged on for nearly six years. Uh, throughout the campaign, we've all, we also, we've all seen the, the, the funny video montages of the president praising his efforts with, with uh, how great it would be if, if the United States work, had a good relationship with Russia. And, and he has pledged to work more closely with Russia in Syria and, and specifically in the fight against ISIS. But um, you know, this was a story that I saw you tweeted out, in fact, this week. Um, it seems that officials in Russia are getting a little bit frustrated with the talk about collaboration and, and aren't so much seeing any actual effort to collaborate. And then it was reported just today that... Um, uh, Russian warplanes accidentally, accidentally bombed uh, U.S.-backed rebels on the ground. Uh, is this is this sort of a how does how is the president going to approach this? What what can the administration do, practically speaking, in policy terms, to actually improve the relationship collaboration with Russia and Syria? Is it is it possible? Well, this is such an interesting question. I was just thinking about this on the way over here. Um, you know, Trump clearly has said that a million times that he would um, be interested to work with Russia um, in the fight against terrorism and, and possibly in Syria. The Russians are clearly very eager to do that. They would find it very validating for their role as a kind of co-equal. They want to be seen as equal to the United States and respected by the United States. And I think a, a Russian lawmaker a couple days ago was, was quoted saying, you know, um, you know, the U.S. needs to hurry up. They want Secretary of Defense Mattis to meet with his counterpart, Shoigu, about this. Um, I think that uh, whether or not Trump wants to do this, he's going to face a lot of resistance from the Pentagon, from Mattis, from his new national security advisor, Big Master. Um, one of the things you've heard is that um, the Russians don't use smart precision, not much precision weaponry in, in Syria, and a lot of the... Uh, Groups they've targeted over the past year and a half um, are the moderate opposition, not the not the Islamic State. So the Pentagon is resentful. Um, you know, the, 
this would make the U.S. kind of so potentially associated um, with targeting the moderates whose hearts you're trying to win. And so I think that the Pentagon would be very resistant to a operational cooperation in Syria. But I do think, um, and secondly, you know, the other inhibiting factor is there are all these investigations now by the FBI, by Congress, of um, potential or alleged potential um, Russian ties to Trump associates in the Trump campaign, which uh, forced partly forced the resignation of Trump's first national security advisor, Michael Flynn. So I think, you know, that makes it a little awkward for Tillerson, for instance, Secretary of State Tillerson, to jet off to Moscow and start talking to Putin, right? Like, you know, everyone's going to be looking very closely at that meeting and suspicious of what's going on. So um, it is very interesting to watch that kind of inhibition play out. And you've seen the uh, Trump at his press conference a couple weeks ago say he thinks that's what Putin's thinking. Like, oh, like, Trump can't doesn't have the freedom to do what he wants right now. So that's why Trump was saying he thinks Russia was doing some more aggressive actions in the past couple of weeks. It was very interesting how he's, he seems to think he understands Putin very well. Um, I do think, you know, while uh, all this stuff is happening in Washington with Trump's address to Congress and new cabinet chiefs uh, getting appointed and confirmed and getting in place um, very quietly in Geneva, the U.S. and Russia and the Syrians and other parties have been meeting on the, like, this is now Geneva 4 of the Syrian peace talks. Uh, they don't seem to making, be making a huge amount of progress, but as a, as a vehicle for a, an eventual venue for U.S.-Russian cooperation in Syria, um, look that, you know, this is what John Kerry and Obama were trying to do the last year and a half as well. They were trying to do ceasefire deals with Russia. Um, um, I think, again, we may have more continuity. We get may get more continuity with some kind of ceasefire deal in place for Syria. And then you have time, you know, if you could get a ceasefire to last in Syria, then maybe you could have the hard political talks on what a post-liberated Raqqa uh, post, you know, Assad's taken Aleppo on how do you coexist? What <clears throat> kind of political arrangements do you have over the longer term um, for Syria? And I think that, you know, that is the kind of discussion that the U.S. and Russia could have. And it's going to look a lot like the discussion that um, Obama and Kerry were having with the Russians last year. It, it would seem that the perhaps the, the proverbial elephant in the room of those ne negotiations and um, is, is the role of Iran. And you know, the one one thing that I find very interesting about the president's approach to these these to the region, he has, as we've just discussed, he has expressed an interest in, in working closer with Russia. And, and as you said, there's actually there 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 has been some substantive movement on the ground in these issues. Um, but he's the president has also been very critical of, uh, and so as have his cabinet members, have been very critical of Iranian behavior in the region. Is, how do you square that circle? How does a president who wants a better relationship with Russia, particularly in Syria, also square the fact that he has an administration that um, is highly suspicious of Iranian motives there? That's right. And it's one of the most interesting things I'm still watching. And I don't think we know yet how it's going to play out. One of the things I noticed from Trump's uh, address to Congress on Tuesday was he mentioned that he'd already passed um, sanctions against individuals and entities in Iran for its ballistic missile, missile test and um, had mentioned his support for the state of Israel. But, you know, he was, in other words, pointing to something he'd already done on Iran 
um, which was sanctions for its ballistic missile tests, but not saying he's going to throw out the nuclear deal. And you saw a couple of weeks ago when some of um, Trump's national security team were backgrounding reporters and they put Iran on notice. Um, they said, by the way, we're, you know, this has nothing to do with the nuclear deal. We're not touching that. We're, this, we're complaining about other behavior Iran is doing. And even then, they were talking about Iranian behavior vis-a-vis um, -vis support for the Houthi rebels in Yemen and some of the things the Houthis were doing against um, shipping, you know, Saudi and UAE and U.S. ships um, moving through in international waters near there. So, you know, where Iran is very predominant, like in Syria or Iraq, um, they didn't mention that. And I thought that was quite interesting. And one of the constraints on the U.S., even Trump, even an administration that's quite hostile to Iran, pushing back too much on Iran in places like Iraq and Syria um, is because there's so many U.S. forces exposed there. And some of uh, Trump's top National Security Council officials spent a long time in Iraq when um, Iranian-backed Shia militias were putting down improvised explosive devices that were killing a lot of coalition forces. That was just a few years ago. And that formed an impression of Iran in their minds. Now the U.S. is back in Iraq for the past two years fighting IS. Um, Iran is supporting basically the same side the U.S. is, and Iranian-backed Shia militias in Iraq are no longer um, putting down IEDs, attacking uh, U.S. and coalition forces. There's been a kind of cold peace. And so I think that is a constraint on the U.S. demonstrating toughness against Iran in the region and in Iraq, where we have, I think, 5,000, 6,000 forces and more contractors um, in Syria, you know, you saw Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, um, and, and uh, his co-author, Michael Ledeen, in a couple interviews, talk about, oh, we can, you know, push Russia to push Iran out of Syria. We can, um, you know, try to do this jujitsu to, like, give Russia the choice of be friends with us or be friends with Iran. I think Flynn's departure... Um, uh, makes that a less likely course. I think it was already unlikely to be successful whether or not the U.S. attempted it um, because the Russian-Iranian uh, uh, partnership um, is very pragmatic and, and the, you know, it's all interest-based. So I, th I don't think Russia basically ha feels like it has to give up um, its partnership with Iran in places like Syria um, um, to achieve something with Trump. So I'm, I'm not sure how far that will go, and I'm not sure now that there's basically a strong advocate for that in the administration the way there was when you had Michael Flynn as national security advisor. Um, you know, and, and Secretary of Defense Mattis, partly because of um, his, uh, you know, being a Marine and, and the uh, Iranian-backed attacks against Marines in, in Beirut in the 80s, you know, also apparently has a lot of uh, suspicion of Iran but Mattis um, also now is in charge of a defense department where you have a lot of U.S. forces exposed in that region. I don't know if, if, if uh, someone in that position is looking to escalate against Iran, um, you know, for no, for no apparent purpose, <clears throat> right? So I think that they have to think carefully about where do you push back on Iran in the region. And but what they came up with so far is Yemen, you know. And, and even there, Yemen is complicated because, as you saw, the Saudis have been bombing there for a couple of years. And what really the U.S. doesn't need is a failed state in Yemen. That's going to be another. When Trump talks about, you know, $6 trillion the U.S. spent in the Middle East, you know, 
even its U.S. association with the Saudi uh, campaign in Yemen uh, is is arguably damaging for the U.S. There's a festering, you know, Al Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula and smaller Islamic State presence in Yemen that um, is not being helped by that Saudi-led campaign. So I don't think the U.S. is really looking for a, um, you know, another intervention in in, in such a poor country. Um, that's going to be very expensive and, and force the U.S. to be responsible for um, stabilizing it afterwards. It's it's such an interesting turn of events, isn't it? And you, I, I think the way you just described it is kind of a cold piece in that you have U.S. military uh, personnel that are now I- in the administration and, and their experiences, and in Congress as well, if you look at someone, for instance, like Senator Tom Cotton, whose experiences have been informed by having to deal with those Iran-backed militias uh, earlier, you know, during the Iraq war. And then even in Iran, you know, it's often perhaps cliched at this point, but it's often said that um, the, the leadership there now is, is, is one that is informed by the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, uh, during which it was largely perceived that, that you know, that Iran was fighting, fighting the West. So, um, and, and Iranian domestic politics is, of course, an unavoidable element in all of this. And, and they do have elections coming up later this year. You did a, a tremendous amount of reporting back in 2015 on the nuclear uh, negotiations. I think you, you touched upon the, the agreement a little bit earlier, but do you think... What where does it? What factor will the Iranian domestic politics have on this? Is it... Is, is it likely that elections are going to harden positions there, or, or will you see sort of a kind of a, a continuation of this cold peace? It's really fascinating. I mean, I think that there, you know, I, I don't have the, the window I wish I did onto Iranian domestic politics, even though I try to follow it as, as much as you do. Um, but I do think it's so interesting how our two political systems kind of are watching each other. And so, you know, a lot of people, when Trump was elected, they're like, oh, he's your, you know, Ahmadinejad, you know, your populist, kind of obnoxious, you know, uh, contrarian. Um, That's how they saw it, or a lot of people saw it. Um, And so, you know, when Iranians see hardliners or more hardliners and um, come to power in the U.S., how does it play out over there? Um, I think that it is very interesting to watch how, how, you know, um, people like Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif, um, Iranian President Rouhani, people who are very associated with having advocated inside Iran for negotiating with the U.S. on the nuclear deal, they're kind of having to defend themselves now. Like, you know, well, what did we get? You know, look, we did the nuclear deal and we did all this stuff. We didn't didn't get all the sanctions relief we were hoping for. And now we get this guy in power in the U.S. who talks very hostily about Iran and um, there, I think they're probably ordinary people are probably very uncertain if Trump's interested in keeping the nuclear deal. He's keeping that very close to his chest. Um, so I, it will be very interesting to see how that plays out in Iranian domestic politics. Also, you know, because of your coverage, you know, Europe and Russia and China and, and sort of the international community writ large have made pretty clear every time they come to Washington repeatedly from from after the election through through now um, that they're keeping they're, they may plan to continue to keep the nuclear deal with Iran whether or not the U.S. stays in and they say if the U.S. walks away the U.S. is walking away alone and even most interesting to me was when Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu um, was in town last week meeting with Trump um, you know he was such a fierce critic of the deal made Obama's life pretty miserable about it um, and 
I didn't hear Netanyahu demand in the public press conference he did with uh, Trump um, that they throw away the nuclear deal. He, again, complained about ballistic missiles, talked about Iran's um, malignant activities in the region. Um, he praised Trump for putting on sanctions for the ballistic missile tests. Um, so I actually wonder if some of the fiercest regional critics of the nuclear deal have now gotten kind of used to it. I think they've gotten probably 10 or 15 years of Iran without a nuclear weapon, at least, um, from it. And they're seeing probably, well, what do we want from Trump? What could we get from Trump on these other areas, like shipping? You know, what are they doing in the region? Um, so it's really very interesting to watch. The other undercover thing that I've only seen out of the corner of my eye, but I'd love to pay more attention to, is um, now that Obama's gone and Trump's come in and there's a little bit of uncertainty about what his plans are maybe inside his administration as well. Um, you've seen quiet uh, uh, Saudi-Iranian conversations. They're talking about the Hajj again, about Iran returning to the um, pilgrimage. Um, you've seen um, Iranian President Rouhani visit Oman and Kuwait. There's apparently some uh, Gulf Cooperation Council letters to Iran about some kind of dialogue. So maybe now that... Um, you know, the President Obama, who associates so associated, I think, in, in, in the Arab world um, with this outreach to Iran. Now that he's gone, we're in the Trump era, you know, maybe some of these um, domestic, it, these regional disputes, this sectarian conflict, you know, maybe there'll be forays by internal players to try to reduce the, their tensions. So that's something very interesting to watch. Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.